Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. So let's jump right in. Greg, what is your top piece of advice for leading through change? Experience a mindset of gratitude. The toughest part about change is that we're drawn, our eyes, our brain, our experience is drawn to what we're losing. We often fill in missing gaps with negative information. And when it comes to change, it's easy to let our gaze wander to what we're losing. But if we practice gratitude as we lead through change, we train ourselves to focus on what we're gaining. If we use one of the seven keys of success, which I know we'll talk about later, curiosity, we get curious about what could be good about this change. And we train our brain to look for the positive. And that makes leading through any change easier. I love that. For those of you who don't know him, Greg Offner is an expert in professional performance and navigating disruption. His clients include Fortune 100 companies where he works with industry leaders and executives to elevate performance, eliminate disengagement, and make work suck less. So let's get back to your advice and dig in a little bit. Talk to me about these seven keys of success. Sure. So in my own experience with change and in the research that I've done, I've identified seven keys and we call them keys because of my background in music. And so if anyone is familiar with the musical alphabet, it starts with C and these seven keys are curiosity, drive, energy, focus, gratitude, attitude, and belief. These are commonly referred to as soft skills, but soft skills don't really, that's not a standout, that's not a good title for these skills. So I like to call them tactical skills. These seven tactical skills or keys are what leaders should be thinking about developing within their people, within themselves, and embedding in the culture of their organization so that their people, their organization, and even their industry can thrive in the coming years. These are going to be and are the most in-demand skills for workers to possess so that they can approach the future of work with an ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. That's going to be the most important competency for business in general to possess is the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Those seven keys of success are what help us get there. But these feel like really, really fungible skills. What's to prevent employers or employees from taking advantage of training in these tactical skills and then taking their talents elsewhere? What's the value proposition for employers particularly right now where we're in the middle of a great resignation, right? Folks are changing jobs at historic rates. So help me and help my listeners understand where the value proposition here is in investing in in your employees like this today. So I'll answer the question, but it reminds me of that old story that I'm sure your listeners have heard of the CEO and CFO sitting together at a meeting talking about the business and the CFO says, if we invest in, in our people and all of this development, what will happen if they leave? And the CEO says, well, what will happen if they stay? And whenever I tell that story in a keynote, the crowd goes, ooh. But the way I see it, what the question the CEO should ask is, what will they say 
when they leave. If we look at, now to answer your question a little bit more directly, Alyssa, if we look at statistics coming out of the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the BLS, it shows that employees are generally staying at companies about four years right now before they move on. The era that my grandparents grew up in, where you found a company and worked with them for 20 or 30 years, retired, got the gold Rolex and sailed off into the sunset, financially fat and happy. That era is gone and is never going to return. And employers need to rethink of how they think about developing leaders and their people. The first mindset shift starts with replacing the term employee development with the term people development, a holistic approach to developing people. And yeah, that's what these fungible skills get at. But understanding that after four years, these people are going to leave, we really need as leaders in the business world, we really need to be concerned with what they're going to say when they arrive at their next destination. Are they going to say to their colleagues, oh, I would never go back to work there. They only trained me in things that were applicable to my job. Or will they say, I loved working there because the skills they trained me in gave me the ability to be here. I'm so happy to be here, but I couldn't be here if I hadn't been there. And they're going, the employee is going to be having that conversation with someone who may be at the end of their four-year tenure. So these employees who leave with the fungible skills we've given them, they go on to become our best apostles, our best source of recruiting, our best referral sources for new talent development. And in any organization, what I ask leaders to think about are the three types of people they'll meet at work. They have sleepers, they have leapers, and they have keepers. So sleepers, leapers, and keepers. The sleepers are the folks who might today be called actively disengaged or disengaged. They're going to stay asleep as long as they can get away with it, collect the paycheck. That's really why they're there. They're there for a check. Then you have your leapers. They're building a career. So they come to work because it's a career. And you might not be the end stop in that career, but you're an important stop on the journey. So it's incumbent upon leaders to give those leapers the tools they need to move on in their career. The faster they can help them make that leap, the more reverence that individual will have for the organization, the better referral source they'll be, the better apostle they'll be when they go out into the world. Then you've got your keepers. They're here because it's their mission. This is their calling. This is where they want to be. They don't want to be anywhere else. We don't necessarily need to do a whole lot in terms of developing for retention. There we want to develop for promotion because they'll be the people in the driver's seat very soon who have to discern the leapers from the sleepers from the keepers and figure out how to approach learning and development in the next era. But, but right now those fungible skills, they're incredibly important. And as you pointed out, they are hard to quantify looking for an ROI that you can spreadsheet on these immediately. It's a bit aggressive and we need to give the relationship time to blossom. We need to build a little bit of trust. What you will see is a different feeling throughout the office, throughout the community of your customers, because as they develop, as your people develop these soft skills of curiosity, of gratitude, the way that they treat themselves, their colleagues and your customers changes pretty dramatically. 
So it may not be something we spreadsheet, but it's absolutely something we see and feel. And as we think about those changes in culture, help me understand how those kinds of changes in culture and how those how upskilling our folks in these tactical skills can help us improve our resiliency to change as an organization. So as we build these soft skills, what we're creating is a virtuous cycle. As our people become better, they show up to work in their role as an employee. Now Simon Sinek pointed out that 100% of employees are people. So if our people are improving themselves, then by extension, that virtuous cycle means our employees are improving. And there are two ways to approach change. There are two rather important components of approaching change. One is the methodology that we employ. All of your listeners know, you know, I know, there are an abundance of methodologies that we can utilize for change. Picking the right one for your organization is important, yes, but we don't really need to create them because they exist. I think the two most popular would be the Lean or the Six Sigma approach and the sort of pro-sci model, right, ADCAR. The other side of approaching change, the one that isn't talked about as often that these fungible, these seven keys address, is the mindset of change. And that's really where it breaks down for organizations. That's where we get numbers like 70% of attempts of change and disruption failing for organizations. Those don't come from process so much as perspective. The mindset of your people as you enter and approach and, and try to nurture and cultivate that change is what stops change from being successful. Because again, the immediate reaction is to push change away, to look at what's negative, what we're losing. When we start to develop these seven keys of success, these fungible skills within our people, we cultivate the type of person that is curious, that looks for what could be good about this, that sees disruption as a positive, that is grateful for what these changes bring, and that understand how to harness the other seven keys as well. And so is there any one of the seven keys that you think is particularly instrumental in, in change resilience, or is there a particular interplay here that we should be looking for? Yeah, so I, for me, and for most, I think gratitude is maybe the most important of the seven keys. There are studies that show its positive impact on longevity, put business results off to the side. You can live longer if you practice gratitude. And it's absolutely a practice. It's something that we can get better at. It's something that if we don't do often enough, we can slip back a little bit. And, you know, just sharing a story about me at the beginning of this pandemic, my wife and I had just found out we were pregnant when sort of the world shut down and my entire calendar of speaking engagements just all of a sudden vanished and became empty. That was a really difficult time for me to practice gratitude. And I slipped back. I've had to claw and fight and really work my way back to a regular and effective practice of gratitude. But the impact is tremendous. And for organizations that develop that skill within their people, and it is a skill, they will see greater resilience to not only change, but to adversity. And that is a, a leading indicator of creativity. So when we experience gratitude, we mute the fight or flight response that our body produces when we're sensing stress. And that creates space for creativity. So then how do we think about as leaders of teams, creating an environment to and creating a psychologically safe space for a practice of gratitude among our people and a practice of gratitude that feels authentic. I think too often 
we hear people talk about gratitude and it feels a little trite. So how do we create a feeling of psychological safety, a feeling of, of authentic gratitude um, and where you can explore gratitude in a safe space within your team? That's a great question. And it really starts, you may be surprised to hear this answer, it really starts with the data and with the numbers. To your point, gratitude does get a bad rap and it gets a very, for lack of a better way to explain this, it gets a crunchy granola, yoga pants on a mountaintop type of vibe. You know, when you hear that word. And because there is so much data from the world of positive psychology about the, the true and tangible benefit of a practice of gratitude, this is one area where we need to lead, where we should, where I would lead with data and show some of the scientific proof because the people who are going to push back against this are the folks who, who lead with data in their life, because this does feel very abstract. Once the data has been presented, it's important to also explain that this is not a work practice of gratitude. This is a personal practice of, of gratitude that will blend into performance at work. So it's unreasonable to expect our employees to be creating a gratitude journal that lists successes and things we're grateful for at work. Like I'm grateful Bob made coffee today, but realistically the way to, to start this practice is to focus on small, but sustainable items of gratitude. So perhaps the parking space that I found at work today, or for many of us now, the fact that I didn't have to drive to the office today would be a place to start our gratitude practice. And as I say that, I realized that I fell into one of the traps that most of us fall into when we start a gratitude practice, and that's being grateful for something we didn't. What we should try to focus on is being grateful for something we did, or at least reframing the statement into something we did. So it's not that I didn't have to drive to work today. It's that I was able to work from the comfort of my home today. We're grateful for what we have, not what we avoided. Starting with those really small elements, those really small items, three items a day is the best way to cultivate this practice of gratitude to really begin. I love that. And I also love this thing that you said about a practice of gratitude, building resilience to adversity, whether that adversity you know, is real or sort of feared adversity in the future and a leading indicator for curiosity. Talk to me about the role curiosity plays in, in the way we approach change and productive engagement with change. This is something that I saw when I worked in the manufacturing sector. The company that I worked for changed the layout of one of our uniform facilities. And some of the folks who had been working there for a pretty long time had this very visceral, that's not the way we do it, reaction to things. Because for them, Having been there so long, their institutional knowledge, their worth is probably a very strong descriptor, but their sense of seniority and accomplishment at work very much stemmed from the ability to know the right way versus the wrong way of doing things. And in a, in a, in a C-level leadership session that I facilitated, one CEO blessed me with this term, the new way is the right way. And that's sort of a, it is how it is statement that, you know, only a CEO could make to someone. But the point of that is that being interested in what could be advantageous about this new way, being curious about what could be advantageous about this new way versus being certain 
that I know the right way. That's where curiosity really starts to make a difference and shine in times of change and disruption and upheaval is if we can step aside from our value, our, again, worth is a tough word, but it's really what keeps coming back to me here. If we can step aside from our worth being defined by knowing the right way and start letting our worth be defined or our value, the impact we make for our organization be defined by the quality, the clarity and the creativity of our questions. This is all driving curiosity is the quality, the clarity and the creativity within the question. All of a sudden now we start to unlock answers and uncover ideas and, and possibilities that we never thought existed. But that doesn't happen if we're living in this world of certainty. It only happens when we're open and we're curious. Are you seeing with your clients cross-generational conflict and a cross-generational challenge approaching change with curiosity, given that there are different models for longevity within a role and longevity within a company as you look across generations? God, that's a big question. I say it's a big question because it's one important, of course, that's why you're asking it, but there are so many facets within that question. So if we just talk about conflict, cross-generational conflict at work, and obviously we don't mean literal conflict, we mean sort of the mental, the, the conflict of ideas. Yes, because the conception of what does work mean has changed from generation to generation. And if we are curious generationally, if we're open to try and not say this generation is wrong and this generation is right, but ask, what is it about the way they approached work and what they've learned in their experience working, whether it's a short time or a long time, that makes them approach XYZ problem or XYZ event in this way, that minimizes conflict, cross-generational conflict in the workplace. And then sort of the second level to that is cross-generational conflict within the conflict of change, because that that's not just generational, that's individual. There are some boomers that are still in the workforce who love, who thrive in change, unless that change is that we don't work in an office anymore and that we're working remote, right? That's a bridge too far, but that really doesn't have to do with the individual so much as their view of what work is. So it's, it's a bigger issue than just them. That's a, it's a held belief that we work at work and we're home at home, but that's not the case anymore with smartphones and with the post pandemic approach now to what does it mean to get work done? So it's a big question, but it's a really important one to understand for organizations because there are whole competencies and professionals dedicated to understanding this cross-generational and interpersonal interactions at work. And if we don't come at that from a place of curiosity, if we're coming at that from a place of certainty, then we're already starting off on the wrong foot. We've talked about leading through change and creating a culture of gratitude and encouraging a culture and a practice of gratitude among the people we lead. We've talked about promoting curiosity, leading with curiosity through change. But we're subject, all of us are subject to a ton of change from all corners and much of that change we're not leading. So based on your experience, what can you tell our listeners about your top advice for following through change? I disagree a little bit that we're not leading. I really see everyone as a leader. 
And to that extent, I'd take it a step further and say everyone is a teacher. I mean, that's really what I get the pleasure of doing in, in my keynotes and in the work that I do with organizations is I get to teach. I, I went to college initially studying to be a music educator. I wound up graduating with this weird degree in psychology, philosophy, and music. And in my travels, what I've realized is that there's only two ways that we learn. We teach ourselves or we're taught by others. And when we use this term leader, right, are we leading through change or are we following? Well, who are, who are we following? Who are we leading? If we're not leading, if we're not leaders of ourselves, we've already sort of lost a massive opportunity. And so I really do think that that process of leading ourselves through change begins with the mastery and the development of those seven keys of success. If we show up, no matter what level we are at an organization, and we say, you know what, I don't really want to change, but I'm curious, I, I'm, I'm willing to hear this out, and I'm going to listen for opportunity rather than have my radar going off and shooting beep, 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 beep. every time there's something negative about this change, I'm going to tell that radar to just quiet down, maybe put it on mute, put it on vibrate, and instead really send up a signal and try to tune into opportunity. Where are the opportunities here? And it takes a lot of practice. But if we sit through that meeting, again, you don't have to be, I'm not preaching toxic positivity here. We don't have to go, oh, I'm so excited to change. I have to work more. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Let's, let's bring it down a notch, but just open ourselves up to look out for what could be good about this. Where are the opportunities in here? And in that meeting, take some notes. What could be an opportunity? Hmm, I'm curious. I'd like to know more about that. Not, I'd like to know more about that so I can prove them wrong and this change is terrible, but I'd like to know more about that so I can really see where the cracks that could open up into massive opportunities exist. Because that's our job for our organizations, whether it's you and I for the clients that we serve, or it's an individual who goes to work for an employer. Our job is to deliver impact. It's to take tiny opportunities, inefficiencies, potentials, and turn them into massive efficiencies, massive opportunities, big wins. By creating more impact for our employer, for our client, or for our industry, we create the opportunity for larger incomes for ourselves. I'm not anti-income, but I'm primary impact focused. We need to focus on the impact that we create every day. And so when we lead ourselves through change, right, we're going to follow others because the CEO or the industry or the universe, you know, in terms of COVID said, hey, here's change, deal with it. Right? We, we, we have the choice every day to lead ourselves through this change and how we lead ourselves is what determines our level of success and satisfaction. And the thing that guides how we're going to lead ourselves are those, those, what you called fungible skills, what I call tactical skills, what are commonly referred to as soft skills of curiosity, drive, energy, focus, gratitude, attitude, belief, these seven keys. That's, that's Alyssa, that's why these are so important for our listeners to really internalize. Well, thank you, Greg. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly, how should they go about doing that? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So I'm on all the socials. Gregory Offner Jr. is, you know, type it in the search bar. You'll find me. Bald-headed dude, generally with a piano somewhere in the picture. But what I'd like to offer, because I keep talking about these seven keys, and I know that I've said them, but I haven't really explained how important they are or how specifically they impact 
life for all of us. What I'd love our listeners to do is just text keys to 33777. So if you do that, you're going to get a PDF that's shot to you. And it's a breakdown of these seven keys. They're sharps and flats. You know, in the music world, sharp is a positive, right? And a flat kind of is a negative. We go down because there's assets. There are positives to being curious. And there's also some negatives to being overly curious. So if they text keys to 33777, they'll get that overview. And I think that'll help them contextualize this conversation a bit more. And we will be sure to include that information here in the show notes. Well, this has been a great conversation. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to changes and transitions in their own organizations. If you'd like to continue the conversation or bring this conversation to your organization, you can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com. Thank you again, Greg. This has been great. Thanks for having me. This has been a ton of fun, Alyssa.